I appreciate Dick praying for the pastors uh, and the Christians, uh, in particular in Afghanistan. Um, I was actually sitting there thinking about that as, uh, as we were um, singing. Uh, and man, it's really hard not to sing that last song and uh, not think about death having no grip on me and think about those believers in Afghanistan right now. Um, and just praying that the Lord would help them to believe that and strengthen them for what lies ahead of them. Um, it's uh, it's going to be tough. Um, you know, when, uh, when Mike and Sue Cook were here uh, with Allow the Children, uh, they, uh, they told me, I had known this before, but they reminded me that there's a, a pastor who I knew uh, when I was over there traveling and teaching. Uh, pastor Govinda is his name. He's an older man, very faithful, sweet, quiet guy, and um, he's been thrown in prison uh, with some false accusations over, you know, whatever, and trumped up by uh, the Hindu folks in his village, and he's been thrown in prison, and they've tried to get him out and worked on it, and there's just no way that they can, and so he's just going to sit in prison for quite a long time. Um, and, uh, you know, that's reality for a lot of believers around the world. Um, they they are they have to be very careful in how they talk about the faith and how they share the faith and how they practice their faith, and that's quite true, obviously, right now in Afghanistan. So, uh, so pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ over there. Um, my understanding is that the church has grown significantly in Afghanistan, um, which is an amazing thing, and uh, nothing will stop that. Um, the church will not, uh, not be silenced and not be put in the closet. Um, the Lord will work, and he will continue to work, and he'll work through martyrs and through difficulty. Um, so, uh, so pray for them. Uh, this morning and, uh, and throughout the coming weeks as you, as you think about it. Well, we're going to have our last study in Exodus 20 this morning, and so why don't you turn there to Exodus chapter 20. That's where we'll be. One of my favorite TV shows of late has been the History Channel show called Alone. Some of you know that I love this show. Maybe some of you have seen this before, but if you are not familiar with this show, let me give you the basic idea of what happens. It's a reality show, but not like other reality shows. They take 10 people who are reasonably well-trained in wilderness survival. Some of these people make it the habit of their lives to try to survive out in the wilderness. And they take 10 of these people and they take them to a remote location and they drop them off one by one. And they're several miles away from each other so they can't make contact with each other. They can't work together to survive. And they drop them off in these predetermined locations and each of them are allowed 10 items to take with them to help them to survive. And so they'll take things like a knife, a bow and arrow perhaps, a sleeping bag, that's helpful if you're in the northern part of Canada, et cetera, et cetera. There's all these different items that they'll take, fishing line, you know, to try to help them to survive. And as they're out there, there's not a film crew with them. They are given cameras and they're taught how to use them and they are responsible to film themselves and the idea of the show is whoever lasts the longest, now they don't leave them out there till they die. People have phones, satellite phone, they can tap out at any time that they want to, and they can, uh, they, sometimes they pull people out because they're getting too thin from not being able to get food, 
It's a health risk, but the point is, whoever lasts the longest and makes it without tapping out wins half a million dollars. It's fantastic television. <laughs> it's amazing. Now, the thing about the show is most people, almost everyone, has difficulty finding enough food. I mean, that makes sense. They have difficulty keeping predators away, and they have difficulty staying warm, but everybody, pretty much everybody in every season of this show that I've watched struggles with being alone, with being by themselves, and that's why the show has the, the name Alone. It's not so much the physical difficulties that make most people tap out and leave. It's the emotional challenge of being absolutely isolated and by yourself for weeks and sometimes months on end. The social isolation is the most difficult part. And there's a reason for that. God has designed us and has made us to live with other human beings, and we need relationships, and we need interaction with others. We're not designed to live by ourselves on a remote mountain somewhere for months on end. We just don't work that way. Psalm 133.1 says it like this regarding the, the beauty and the wonder of people living together in harmony. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Humans are made to interact with one another, made to live in harmonious relationships, and it's a wonderful thing when that happens. I'm sure all of you have experienced this and maybe are experiencing it right now in certain of your relationships. It's awesome when it clicks and when it goes well. Here's the problem, though. Even though we were designed to live together in a beautiful web of relationships with other people, when you stick humans together in any sort of relationships after Genesis 3, it gets messy really, really quickly. We make a mess of things with one another. I mean, what happens in Genesis 4? You turn the page, and immediately there's friction, there's jealousy, there's anger, and Cain kills his brother Abel right off the bat. And thus, the history of human relationships has been this really strange mixture of harmony and beauty and tragedy in how we live together and how we relate to one another. And because of that, humans need guidance, and we need instruction in how to have more beauty than tragedy in our relationships with one another. Things are not going to be perfect this side of the fall, but there are certain guidelines that Scripture gives to Israel here in Exodus 20, and by extension to us and in the New Testament regarding how we live with one another and how we have more beauty than tragedy in our relationships. Now, of course, Jesus gives us that instruction, broadly speaking, in the passage that we talked about last week at the beginning of our time together, where he says that the second great commandment is to love one another, to love others, your neighbor, as you love yourself. That encapsulates this whole list of commands, of guidelines for how human beings are to live together in harmony. How do we do it? We love one another. We prefer others better than ourselves. We want what's good for the other person. And that second greatest commandment is a summary of the second half, almost half, the second six commands in the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. And that's what we're going to look at today. 
So in these verses, let me remind you what we're looking at. This is our third week in the Ten Commandments, and we're going to get to our third point here of our series in, in this passage. But we're looking at three ways that God's law gives life. That God's law gives life. And the first one of these is by revealing God's character to us. This is found in the first couple of verses of Exodus chapter 20. Now keep in mind, again, this is important to remind you that these, even though we use the word commands, and I will say commandments at times, these aren't simply arbitrary commands. In verse 1, look there, it says, And God spoke all these words. And he intentionally used that word, word there, instead of commandments, because it's broader than just something that we need to obey arbitrarily. This is, carries the idea of something that reveals God's character to us. It's an act of revelation. It's a word given to Israel to reveal God and to reveal to them how they should live. And so they, they are to know God through these words that are given to them. And the first thing that they know about God is found in verse 2. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. He's the God who delivers. He's the merciful, gracious God who is passionate about his people and passionate about delivering his people. He's also the God who sits on the throne of the universe, as we saw in the early chapters of Exodus. He is sovereign. He is powerful. He rules over all nature and over all other so-called gods. And because of that, he demands, rightly so, he demands exclusive loyalty to him. And that's the point of the words or commands one through four. And that's what we saw last week and a little bit the week before. But the second way that God's law gives life, it reveals his character to us. It teaches us about who God is. But secondly, it teaches us to love God exclusively. We are to be singly focused and devoted to him. And so I would say it this way. If the God of Israel... The God who delivered them is the creator God of the universe. If he reigns and rules over all in power and authority, then Israel must learn to give him their exclusive love and devotion, their exclusive loyalty. And that devotion to him is for their good. And that's what I want you to see so badly throughout this whole explanation of the Ten Commandments. All of this is not to make things more difficult for them. It's to help them. It's to bless them so that then they can be a blessing to the nations. It's so that they can represent him well. And so God demands their exclusive loyalty and forbids them from worshiping idols because all of that damages their humanity and makes things more difficult for them. It corrupts their souls and breaks them down. And so God teaches them here to give him exclusive loyalty and devotion. And that reveals his character to them as well. But in our third way that God's law gives life, it's also going to reveal God's character to us by showing us how to live with one another. And here's the third way, and we'll cover all of this this morning. By calling us to live in love with others. And so we learn about God through this law. It gives us life by knowing him. 
We get life from this law that God gives here by teaching us to love him exclusively and then by calling us to live in love with others. And so what do we learn about God's character from these commands? Commands 4 or 5 through 10. We've already learned that God is a God of love by the way that he has delivered Israel in mercy and grace. So he's an outward-looking God who works on their behalf for their benefit and does them good and delivers them. We've also learned, all the way back to the beginning of the book of Exodus, that he is a God of justice, and he's not going to allow sin and rebellion against him to go unpunished. And so these six commands regarding human relationships with one another and how we live together, these commands teach Israel to deal with one another in love and in justice. And those two ideas reflect God's character. So by acting out these commands, they're understanding who God is and what he's like. He's a God of gracious, others-focused love, and he's a God of justice who gives what is fair and what is right in his grace and in his kindness. The God of the universe gives himself in love for others, for the good of others, and he calls Israel here to reflect that self-giving love in the way that they relate to one another. So one author put it like this. I thought this was very helpful. The remaining six principles of covenant life with God are, at least on the surface, surprising. This is a covenant with God. So what do these holy human-oriented principles have to do with that? They precisely confirm the covenant's function as a teaching device to reveal the character of God. God is profoundly ethical, and his ethics are grounded in self-giving, other-oriented love. Now, it is true here when you read this, this may may never have thought this before, but we are dealing with a covenant with God, right? I mean, God is making a covenant with Israel so they know how to relate to him. And in a rather surprising move, the majority of the commands are how to relate to one another. This is not a covenant in between people. This is a covenant with God. And the reason for this is because the way we treat others And the way we relate to others shows what we think about what God is like. It shows and reflects our relationship with him. And so there's a reason that Jesus pairs together as the greatest and the second greatest commandment, love for God and love for others, because those go hand in hand. You can't have one without the other. They go together. And if you think about it, It's almost overwhelming how much of the Old Testament law, as you'll see as we get further into Exodus, and how much of the New Testament commands and guidance in those books talks about interpersonal relationships. There's so many commands and guidelines and principles that help us to deal with one another in a way that reflects God's character. I love the way that Eugene Peterson put this in his fantastic book, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. The Bible knows nothing of a religion defined by what a person does inwardly in the privacy of thought or feeling or apart from others on lonely retreat. Now, there is an aspect of your faith that is certainly 
individual, but that individual faith always finds expression with other people and interaction with other people. You can judge a lot about a person's faith and how genuine it is based on how they interact with others. And so to imagine that you can sort of do the alone TV show thing with your faith and isolate yourself and practice your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ on your own is to misunderstand the whole Bible and the character of God as an others-oriented God who wants what's good for his people. And so if Israel here, we're talking about Israel with the Ten Commandments, if they were to properly represent God as a kingdom of priests, remember that was their role, they were to mediate God's relationship and and law and character to the nations so that the nations could be blessed, if they were to fulfill that role as a kingdom of priests, then Israel had to learn how to live in love amongst themselves and with each other in relationships. And so because of that, God outlines some very broad principles here for Israel to abide by. Now, of course, you would know this, but all of these are picked up in the New Testament and applied in different ways, as you'll see. But again, these are broad principles here that do have some application for us in our lives today. And God here begins with the very first relationship that every human being will ever have. Look at verse 12. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Now, if you are under the age of 18, I am confident that if you've been in church for any length of time, you have heard someone A Sunday school teacher perhaps talked to you about Ephesians 6, verses 1 through 3. And what happens in in that passage is Paul takes up this command from the Ten Commandments, and he applies it specifically to children who are under 18 and who are living in their parents' home. He talks about them obeying their parents. Now again, let me remind you here that these are broad commands. And so Paul takes this command and then says, here's an application of that command. And there are a lot of different applications under each one of these. And the reason I emphasize that is because I'm convinced that this command, this word here, is not talking to the average, it's not spoken to the average seven-year-old who was standing by Mount Sinai and listening to God give this. I'm convinced that this is given to the adults who were there. It was given to everyone who was there. To honor, the command that's given here is to respect. It's to show honor to them and to respect them, and I think it includes adult children, just like it includes toddlers, which is how we normally think of this. In God's sovereign authority, in his righteous ordering of the universe, he has given to each one of us the parents that we have or had. And to honor your parents is to recognize their role in your life and upbringing for both good and for ill. I understand there are no perfect Parents, and some of you are so aware of that. 
But what he's calling us to here is to see that God placed that person in your life and they are responsible for your existence. You did not choose to be born. And the point is to see your life as a gift given to you that you did not come up with and initiate on your own. And your parents ought to be honored for their role in that and their place in your life. Notice the promise that's attached here, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. God knew that for Israel to exist in the land as a society, they would need to live lives that did not center on self. And I think that's getting to the heart of this command and what God is going after here. One author put it like this. To honor these two is to be constantly reminded that we are not self-originating, that without them we would not even have survived. Thus, this command is a guard against a wholly self-focused life. Societies made up of radically self-centered persons will not survive, nor will such persons survive. And so the entire second part of the Ten Commandments, Commandments 5 through 10, rest on this distinction between living a self-centered life and a life that reflects God's others-oriented love and that recognizes God's sovereign authority. And here, specifically, parents are to be honored as we can because of the role that they have played in God's giving of life to us. Based on This, God goes on to give a series of very short words that are based on the belief that God is the authority and not the self. And so it starts here with recognizing that your life is not your own, that it has been given to you as a gift, and honoring those who gave you that life, recognizing their the benefits and the faults that came with that, and now he goes on to expand and to give more broad commands regarding this others-oriented life. And these words, verses, or words 6 through 10, ascribe dignity to those around us. I mean, there's a reason that God unfolds them this way. He's saying that you need to and you have to recognize the dignity of those who are made in God's image and avoid violating that dignity out of sinful self-interest. Look at verse 13, the fifth word. You shall not, and in your Bible, the ESV, if that's what you have, it probably says murder, which is what mine says. Maybe your Bible says the word kill. That's another option that many Bibles use here. Now, let's talk specifics about that word because I want to try to get to the heart of what's happening here. The word murder is a little too narrow for the Hebrew word here. When you think of murder, you're thinking of someone intentionally taking the life of another person. The word kill is probably a little too broad. So murder's too narrow. Kill is probably a little too broad because there are certain circumstances and situations where God gives human beings the authority to take the life of another human being under certain circumstances. But here's the underlying principle that was to govern all the different applications of this for the life of Israel. When you look at other passages of Scripture, Here's the underlying principle. Those in Israel must not act on their own authority to take a human 
life. They cannot do that. They don't have the right to do that. Only God has the right to decide when a life may be taken. And so let's flip this around now and talk about this from a positive standpoint. You and I don't have the right to take a human life on our own authority, but what's the positive way of stating this? God is telling Israel that they better place a very high value on human life. They should honor human life and respect it, and being made in God's image is significant, and so they better be very careful They must not be flippant about the way that they treat human life or how they may potentially take a human life. The seventh word, found in verse 14 here, you shall not commit adultery. Now here God focuses on the most, I'm going to say, important and intimate of human relationships. To commit adultery is something most of us know what that is. It's to violate your marriage covenant by engaging in sexual intimacy with one who is not your spouse. But keep in mind, when you read this, these are broad words. And so there can be a tendency to say, oh, this is only forbidding someone who is married engaging in sexual intimacy with someone outside of marriage or someone who is not their spouse. And so maybe people might try to interpret this to say, well, to unmarried people or to people who are in a committed homosexual relationship, don't violate this command as long as they don't commit adultery. Let's talk about the purpose of this and the broad impact that this should have had on Israel and that I think certainly should have on us as well as it's applied in the New Testament. The purpose of this command is to exalt and hold up the marriage relationship, which, let's define that, in Scripture is clearly articulated as a lifelong covenant commitment between one man and one woman. That's what it is. God designed in his goodness... He designed sexual intimacy to do a number of things within that relationship. I can't list all of them, but it's to to strengthen the bond that is there, to strengthen the relationship, to produce children, to point toward the love between Christ and his people, the close connection that is there. And so God gives this command here to say to Israel, anything that threatens the marriage relationship as God has defined it in Scripture is sinful and must be avoided by God's people. And so as a broad uh, principle that now has to be applied and will be applied in the rest of the law and certainly in the New Testament, this includes things like premarital sex, any homosexual relationship, pornography, and any use of the good gift of sex and sexuality outside of God's prescribed purpose for it. God has designed us to live in a certain way in his grace and in his goodness. And when we imagine that we can manipulate his gifts and utilize his gifts in ways he has said, don't do that, we're setting ourselves up for incredible heartache and failure and corruption. God is not just being a curmudgeon here, as you will commonly hear in the world. 
related to biblical sexual ethics. He has created us with powerful sexual desires for our good. And when we go outside of his design and we think we can express those desires in any way we see fit or in any way that we deem good, then we undermine God's good design and a lot of people end up hurt in the process, namely, and starting with ourselves. I found this to be helpful. Any action that threatens to undermine the marriage bond must be seen as endangering all human relations. And this is why we're so passionate about this. A society that diminishes the importance of marriage, the most intimate of all relationships, signals that it places a low priority on faithfulness in every other relationship. In the context of the covenant being made between Yahweh and Israel, if the people are unfaithful toward their marriage partners, they will inevitably lack faithfulness towards God himself. To blow through all the barriers to committing adultery is to demonstrate that there is something deeply wrong in your heart and in your life. And it will undo so much in your own life and in the culture at large as it continues to unfold in a way that dishonors God. Let's move on to the next one. All of these commands, as you've seen, are short and let me reemphasize, all of these are focused on the dignity of the other person, valuing that other person, valuing who they are. Certainly not killing or murdering is that, committing adultery is that, and this next one is no different. Look at verse 15, you shall not steal. Now again, this is a broad command, right? I mean, this is broad and talks about and points to respect for other people and the items that they, the things that they possess and have used their time and God-given talents to work for and to possess. And so when you steal, when a person steals, they're indicating two things. They love self more than that other person, and they love stuff more than that other person. Now let's talk about stealing just real quickly here. This extends to more than just shoplifting. I mean, you can steal in any number of ways. I can as well. We can steal from an employer. We can take advantage of a customer through pricing. Or you can utilize a friend's Netflix login. I mean, they're making so much money anyway. Why does it matter if I use my cousin's login? Stealing. To steal is to allow the desire and here's what's going on in your heart, right? It doesn't seem like that big of a deal, but here's what's going on in your heart. It's to allow the desire for self and for stuff to crowd out love for neighbor and for God. It's to exalt stuff and self above love for God and love for neighbor. Listen to this passage in Proverbs. I love how this balances our good human desire for things given by God as gifts to be enjoyed and also our too easy attachment to things from the heart. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. There are 
There are ditches on both sides of this that we need to be careful to navigate in how we relate to stuff and in stealing stuff as well. The ninth word, verse 16, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. To truly love others, to honor the dignity of another person includes how you speak about that other person as well. It's not just avoiding taking their life, committing adultery with their spouse, or stealing their stuff. It goes to how we think about and communicate about that person as well. And so here you find a broad category of bearing false witness. This includes gossip, slander, lying, and many other sins of the tongue. And all of these sins center on our misrepresentation of another person for personal gain and personal promotion. That's what's at the heart of these sins of the tongue and in how we talk about others. A couple of Proverbs that get at this. A dishonest man spreads strife and a whisperer separates close friends. How you speak about other people and handle information and communicate that information can cause a break in relationships. Proverbs 18.8, the words of a whisperer are like delicious morsels. They go down into the inner parts of the body. I love that image there of a whisperer, someone who delights in this information and takes great pleasure in finding it and receiving it, and it's to the detriment of everyone involved. Now, this is particularly hard, I think, for us today. We are bombarded with information that misrepresents the truth and reality and lies about other people. I don't even want to know how many lies all of us here on social media read and listen to on cable news every day. My guess is more lies than truths are on all of those platforms every single one. And it's quite easy to get used to hearing people speak lies about others and then to use our words to feel like we're gaining power over other people, to use our words in a self-centered way rather than being committed to the truth. And that's the command here. That's the call. So flip this on the positive side. The call for Israel is to be a people who are committed to the truth. And you're so committed to the truth that you are careful in how you speak. I love the way James 1.19 puts this. I know this is talking about the relationship to the Word of God in the context, but it certainly has application for how we think about and communicate with one another. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Listening to others, seeking out the truth rather than posting or talking as quickly as possible to try to get something out about it. Lastly, the 10th word, verse 17. Look there. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now, it's interesting when you get to this last command here to think about how we often think about the Old Testament versus the New Testament. Often, I have heard, or maybe you will 
have heard this or think that the Old Testament really has to do with external commandments, with actions, and the New Testament is more focused on the heart. And I think sometimes people read Jesus in Matthew 5 and the Sermon on the Mount, you've heard it said, but I say to you, and they think, oh, what he's doing is he's taking these external commands and he's talking about motivations here. And so we tend to think Old Testament external, New Testament motivations, movements to the heart and desires. That sounds nice, except it's just not accurate. <laughs> it's just not true at all. The Old Testament is filled with focus on the heart, and this is a primary example of it. The tenth word here sums all of the rest of these up in a lot of ways and says, if you're going to commit these other sins, these other violations of God's words and commandments, you're going to go through this path. You're, it's going to happen through your desires and through what happens in your heart. Verse 17 is giving us the motivational core for how we end up sinning in these other ways. Part of the reason I say that is because this word covet is not always used in a sinful sense in the Old Testament. It's not always wrong to covet if you're using it the way that Hebrew uses this word. To covet is simply to desire something and you and I have no choice but to desire things. You and I live our lives wanting things, and there's nothing wrong with that at all. You and I are made to be loving, desiring, affectionate, wanting people. One author has said, and I'm sure I've told you this before, but your heart is a love pump, and you cannot turn it off. You can only aim it at this or at that. And obviously, we want it to be aimed at the right things. God created us that way. And so the primary issue here in verse 17 is not that you're wanting things. Look back carefully at it. What's the issue? It's the object of your wanting. Let me read it again. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Verse 17 doesn't prohibit desiring or wanting, but it does prohibit wanting something that is off limits, that belongs to your neighbors, to your neighbor. The issue here is the object of your desire and my desire. Now, when I read this, I think this is starting to help us to understand what the real issue was for Israel in the Old Testament. What went wrong? I mean, they had all of this laid out so clearly to them. They experienced God at Mount Sinai. God brought them out of Egypt in a miraculous, stunning, unbelievable way. And he graciously gives them these words to reveal himself to them and for their good and promises them this land. I mean, there's so much grace and goodness. It's like, why didn't they just listen and obey? And I think this gets to the heart of the problem. They could not live by this command. They couldn't do it. Their desires were always aimed at the wrong objects. And you see that throughout the Old Testament. And here's the kicker for them. They did not have the ability on their own to shift the object of their desire. They couldn't do it. 
They could not make it happen. They couldn't do it on their own. Listen to how the prophet Jeremiah diagnoses the problem with Israel. There's a whole bunch of places you could go to for this, but I chose this one. And the Lord said to me, proclaim all these words in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem. Hear the words of this covenant and do them. For I solemnly warned your fathers when I brought them up out of the land of Egypt, warning them persistently, even to this day, saying, obey my voice. Yet they did not obey or inclined their ear. But here's the problem. Everyone walked in the stubbornness of his evil heart. Therefore, I brought upon them all the words of this covenant, which I commanded them to do, but they did not. They had it. It was clear. It was written out. But they had stubborn and evil hearts. They needed a heart change to be able to do the right things. And what's so amazing about that is listen to what God promises to Israel in the very same book. A future promise. Sorry, it's small. Thankfully, I can still read it. One day I won't be able to, though. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declare the Lord, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. Now, I'm going to stop there. Don't read ahead. What causes this heart change. Why didn't it happen here? What brings about the difference where now it's not an evil, stubborn heart, now it's a heart that has the law within it and that wants to obey, that can actually not covet and actually not devalue another human being, but has the desires placed in the right way and on the right object. What is it? For... I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Forgiveness of sins is the heart of the new covenant and the new covenant promise here. And this is what flips the switch. This is what changes you and changes me deep inside to be people who want the right things and who have the right objects of our desires. One author put it like this. Radical forgiveness is the basis for the promised spiritual and moral transformation of the people. Radical forgiveness is the basis for the promised spiritual and moral transformation of the people. How do we want the right things? It's forgiveness of sins that has fundamentally changed our hearts and has made us new creatures in Christ. So let me ask you this morning, are you seeing your desires bent toward many wrong things? And even as followers of Christ, obviously we still have the old man hanging on, trying to shape desires in the wrong direction, and our flesh is weak. 
And if that's true of you, how do you aim your desires at the right thing? How does heart change actually happen? How do you grow in your love for God and love for others? The answer lies in the new covenant promise of forgiveness of sins. This brings about heart transformation. Because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross, my sins are now radically forgiven. Separated as far as the east is from the west, I am not guilty for them. I am not responsible for them in God's eyes. I am adopted as his son and radically freed from those sins. And when you and I understand that, radical forgiveness, that is the foundation of spiritual and moral transformation. That is how new desires and new longings and new affections grow in our hearts. It's not just by reading these commands today and going, okay, I'm going to try a lot harder this week. I think I can do it. I cannot covet this week. It's by reading these commands and saying, I can't. But I'm still responsible to, so how do I change to where I want to? Radical forgiveness. Plant your thoughts there and let God change you from the inside out. Let's pray. Father, we need this work in our hearts today. We are still broken people, and yet you have given us your Holy Spirit who graciously lives in us and works in us to bring about new desires. And so I pray today that we'd be a people who cooperate with that work, that we would focus our hearts on the radical forgiveness of sins that we have. You are so gracious and so kind to give us these new desires, which are ultimately for our benefit and for our good. But we need your help, Lord. We need you. We thank you for all that you have done and all that you're continuing to do in our lives. And we love you. In Christ's name we pray.